so I'm here with my friend Kima today, and we're going to be talking about tiny houses, but like not in the weird gentrifier way, but in the way that a lot of black and indigenous people, and honestly houseless people in large cities are finding ways to have sustainable housing and the importance of that. Um, as you know, on the show we talk a lot about folks who are from marginalized communities, but also who are marginalized very much on their own land in places where they should have their own rights. And that's kind of a big thing about this part of the show is because I couldn't focus on traveling to talk to people. Um, I've decided to start reaching out and asking people to tell me their stories. And Kima has agreed. So this is the second season of Rambler. My name is Jordan Marika and welcome. Uh, hi, my name is Kima Nieves. Um, I live here in Virginia, specifically Fredericksburg, the Stafford area. Um, I'm originally from PG County, Maryland. Um, I identify as a cishet, pansexual, um, Mattapanai descended woman. Um, and I have a couple of people that I would like to refer you to before we get started. Um, and the reason why I'm going to refer you to these individuals uh, in particular is because I'm going to be talking about later on. Uh, I'd first like to note Sylvan Aqua Farms. Um, they are a Piscataway-based Black, Indigenous, and people of color uh, farm that is just starting up. Um, they are doing a lot of great work. Uh, they are focused on, right now, trying to get housing for a lot of the employees working there. I have a couple of other Piscataway friends working for them. While you've been going through, um, while you've been going through, like, a lot of things, one of your biggest issues is that you're living on what is technically your ancestral land, but you've faced a lot of housing disparity, and that just don't make no goddamn sense. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. I mean, it's, I've, I found being specifically an Eastern Woodlands person, how deep these housing disparities have, have happened, or that, how deep they go for a lot of Eastern Woodlands people here in the DMV. Um, I, I grew up in, Maryland. Danny and I grew up together, and we were both, both of our families were displaced, so both of our families moved off of our traditional homelands to Maryland for better opportunities, and that's kind of where our story, both of our stories started or integrated, right? We went to high school together, um, and then we both, you know, graduated, and then we were like, we gotta, we gotta get the, we gotta get the heck out of here. Like, we wanted to go back to our people, so we both went on our own little journeys, and my, my journey eventually took me to back to Virginia because <clears throat> I had a lot of fear, mm -hmm. uh, and I originally came for college uh, mostly because I was going to go to Philly. I had a lot of friends up in Philly, and so mm -hmm. my choices were, well, I can go back to Virginia and try to work on reclaiming and um, getting closer to my community and things like that, or I can stay in Philly and go to Temple University. Well, Mary Washington here was a lot cheaper, so oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah, <laughs> and it was so closer to my mom, and my mom was going through some health issues at the time. So I ended up here in Virginia, but I had a really hard time. I had a really hard time trying to find housing. Like I, I worked minimum wage jobs pretty much the entire my the entire entirety of like my teenage and uh young adult years 
Um, and rent here is just astronomical. Like this area that I'm on right now um, is very military based. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it is a lot of Marines, a lot of Army, and a lot of government. So where there is, you know, the Department of Defense, there's going to be a very much higher socioeconomic, you know, status for a yep. lot of these people, which is kind of like, you know, a, a, a double whammy because, like, not only do you have to worry about housing displacement on your own traditional lands, but you're also around, like, uh, systems and agencies that are traumatizing the land on top of it, you know, with all the explosions and military bases. There's a lot of extra trauma, you know, if there is such a thing. There's trauma everywhere, but, like, yeah. <laughs> <layered. laughs> and the but, other thing is that we can be completely honest, is that the hyper-masculine and violent culture that military brings to an area is another issue that is constantly faced by the black and brown women of the demographic who surround it. And we're often very negatively affected by those, honestly, incursions to our communal space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and when people say, ah, oh, incursions, they're blah, 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 protecting you. No, dude. Sexual assault, domestic abuse, and a lot of violent crimes go up as soon as there's more military presence in a place. It don't make anybody safe, just like cops driving around black neighborhoods looking for crime don't make black kids safe. It don't mm -hmm. make no sense. Mm -hmm. And people really try to have that rationale with me. And it's not there. I just don't see the logic, you know? Mm -hmm. Especially because, like you said, it drives the prices up everywhere. And it makes it impossible for regular folks who live there to have sustainable living in their own communities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, like, even... and it, it, I mean, it bleeds over these types of issues bleed over into all facets of your life like especially like with dating you know I I eventually I eventually was only able to find stable living I, I mean I around this area I bounced from room to room I didn't I never had apartments I only had rooms I could only rent rooms because you know I could only afford like three hundred dollars every month if that <laughs> so it wasn't until I started um dating and I found my former spouse that I was able to get housing so it's like you can only really aspire or or reach the socioeconomic status you know via masculine military men around here which was very difficult you mm -hmm. know in, in in our relationships because I was very much from a very young age against like imperialism I I you know knew about the issues like uh, the rape culture that was in the military like all that stuff and I would bring it up you know on my dates and it's kind of like every single one of them you try to justify it or they would have like very you know they would get very defensive mm -hmm. and it's can't speak to them at that point so it's like a value that you're that's important to you is going to constantly be dismissed in dating so it's kind of like well you either isolate yourself completely or you just fucking settle I hate to say it that way but mm -hmm. That's kind of what happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and especially in circumstances where, um, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but black and native women face the highest amount of housing disparity and discrimination out of any other ethnic groups in this country. And the mm -hmm. statistics for both of those demographics are pretty much paralleled. And mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about Eastern Woodlands natives, like I'm Eastern Woodlands, I'm Cherokee, and we're Apache people, we're not... Um, like Apache people who like 
moved down onto the plains, and that's how they ended up closer to Oklahoma when they became, when some people became the Kiowa Apache. We're Appalachian people. We were chased out of our land mm-hmm. um, as a result of the end of the Civil War because more people wanted to land grab, and that was facilitated by the Union and the remaining Confederates. Um, so we ended up in Oklahoma when really we're Woodlands people. And I think that one of the reasons that the issues of Woodlands people are ignored is because in New England, y'all are predominantly Afro-Indigenous. I don't think I've ever seen a picture on a Seneca res or with a lot of Mataponi people or Powhatan or Wampanoag where at least 75% of the people aren't black natives. Uh-huh. And that means that there is a very huge intersection in particular in your area of black native people who are getting the double whammy oh, yeah. of land and housing discrimination. Uh-huh. And uh, people, I don't think, really pay attention to that intersection because tribes like y'all's are smaller. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, uh, I think... I, th- I mean, I think there's a lot of complicated variables that go into it. Like, the tribes are definitely smaller, but it's like you said, like, there is a lot of anti-blackness within the communities and outside the communities. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the law, like, when you start talking about law and, like, you know, state and federal, a lot of us are all, well, okay. We all, most of us used to be state recognized. A lot of the Virginia tribes mm-hmm. found federal recognition recently, but a lot of us were state recognized. And, you know, that dichotomy of state versus federal really impacted a lot of the tribes here. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, if you look at the history, each tribe is each tribal history with the, the state's particular government is different and unique. But um, a lot of it in the end worked to not only try to regulate the racial aspects of indigeneity, but also like land, like how you can move amongst your own land, how Mm -hmm. you can afford to live on your own land, you know, things like that. And a lot of it had to do with anti-blackness. So like the Piscataway, for example, are a really great example of this. Um, Little Space Bubby on Twitter, um, Mm -hmm. Valerie, she's Piscataway, she's She's my girl. Shout out to Valerie. But she uh, has talked a lot about some of the issues that Piscataway have faced. Um, And because the Piscataway are in a unique position. They're not, they don't necessarily have a quote unquote res. You know, they don't have a particular land allotted to them, you know, things like that. They, they're, by the state's standards, by the state definition, they're quote-unquote landless. And I obviously take great issue with that mm-hmm. categorization because, like, if they're indigenous people, how can they be landless? But that's how they categorize them. Yep. And, and because they categorize them that way, because they're considered, you know, more urban, urbanized um, or, you know, suburban, people people leverage that to discredit not only their indigeneity but also prevent them from housing Mm -hmm. so my not to i'm not gonna i'm not gonna put their business out there but we have we had a um a good friend of ours who was piscataway who was in a similar situation as me you know they they were divorced um they were struggling to keep housing their apartment amidst covid and like it's not like they could just go back to the res somewhere and just lay up on somebody's couch. Mm -hmm. They had nowhere to go. And they're queer, you know, they have several other marginalized identities that, you know, uh, 
others have biases against like they didn't have anywhere to go and mm-hmm. so we tried we tried to like make uh, a tiny try to figure out a tiny house option for them something like that and you know even that was difficult mm-hmm. but the point being like because of not having like a designated piece of land to go to like they were like a lot a lot of um indigenous people in the DMV, like <laughs> they have no safe space to go to. They they can't be around their families because of biases. They can't even they can't even lay up on camp out on their own land, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't even in the parks, you can't go to a park and just stay there indefinitely. You know, they're gonna kick you off or they'll yeah. charge you or fine you. You have nowhere to go. <laughs> and the state's not gonna help you out. Like yeah. it doesn't matter if they're enrolled or not. The state is like, well you're state recognized, we can't do anything for you. Like, maybe if you were federally recognized, you would get some stipend money or some something like that. But no, mm-hmm. that doesn't occur here. So it's like, what, what are these individuals to do? Like, they have to rely on, you know, their community to kind of help come up with a solution. But even when the community has a, a goal or a solution for them, there's external factors like finances and zoning laws, you know, which is something that... I'm struggling with right now mm-hmm. um, that prevent you from even doing a tiny house option. Yep. It's, it's so difficult. So there's that. And then, um, you know, that, that, that kind of touches on the, the state federal dichotomy and how that might impact whether you're quote unquote, you know, you have a res or land or what have you, but then you have like your own internal issues. So, you know, I, a couple of people have talked about um, what's going on with the Pamunkey. My cousin Jasmine Anderson, uh, AZ on Twitter, she's talked about what's going on. But like they, they Jasmine and her family <clears throat> live in a rural area. Like, and they 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 don't they can't go. If something were to happen, like they they're stable now in terms of housing. But if something were to happen. Like, they can't, again, they can't go to the res and mm-hmm. just find immediate housing. You know, they have to work within a colonial system in order to find a solution, which is messed up because the only reason why that's not even a possibility is because of anti-blackness in the Virginia Native community. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I feel very similar because we were disenfranchised under, basically, we got paper bagged. And... My relative, who is the connection, was only one child who lived of 13. And because his skin was too dark, they were like, sorry, you're too black. You can't be registered. So now, even though I qualify to register through descendancy, because I can track it all the way back, like, what's the point? They have no land allotment for me. Mm-hmm. And Cherokee people do not treat black freedmen very well, even if we're black freedmen by blood or whatever the fuck that bullshit means. But that happens to so many of us is that our tribes also legally disenfranchise us within their tribal system. Absolutely. And people don't like to take a look at ourselves and talk about the corruption of our own government agencies. But they were established by the BIA. That is not how our chieftainships work. That is not how our governmental systems work. So of course it's corrupt because it's not the way that we are supposed to operate. It was a system put in place to make settlers more comfortable with us. And so it's going to be corrupt, just like all the other stuff they made us do. Mm-hmm. And people really don't like that that's my attitude about the tribal government. You know? I mean, 
I mean, but it's true. Like, and it's something that a lot, a lot of my people that I know, even in my, in my own tribe, other tribes, like even in, you know, the Western tribes where like, you know, people assume that enrollment is so straightforward and assume that belonging is so straightforward. Danny will tell you it's not like, (laughs) there's a lot of, there's a lot of corruption in these tribal governments, like you said, because they mimic colonial ones. And it's like, you know, you can't, you can't decolonize people, you know, people throw around decolonize, like, oh, you're going to decolonize this and decolonize. You can't decolonize a colonizer system. I really, I've never (laughs) understood why people can't, like understand that you know it just uh, the the system in and of itself Deming Deming was a um industrial psychologist and he focused on process improvement a lot of job when I when I first got to my current job um my focus was process improvement of you know everything that's going on in the agency and trying to close gaps and make things better because it was a freaking mess um and so I was referred to Deming to look at process improvement and he his theories have been used by a lot of like industrial or, um, industrial organizations, psychologists, things like that. Oh, excuse me. Uh, and basically what the, his theory is, is that the perfect process, the perfect process will be designed as such so that no matter what variable occurs, your, your workers will always create the same product over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that, that perfectly explains like, government to me when I learned about that I was like well that just that explains government overall especially when you look at like tribal tribal government like they the the perfect process was already created to remove any variability any kind of liberatory efforts right Mm -hmm. and we see that now with like neoliberalism and like how that really kind of how that ideology sabotages true liberation efforts especially from black and indigenous you know people doing the groundwork right like because it's such a perfect process that it just implodes any any kind of new thought free thinking thought anything different you know and uh, that's yeah and that's one of the things i have been trying to talk to people about is that the people i'm speaking to purposefully don't fit respectability politics for our demographic and I'm doing that on purpose because we are the people who are left vulnerable by not only our colonial government, but by the people who are supposed to take care of us because they're trying to play the same game that everybody else who is colonized is. And it's people like, you know, single mothers and queer people who end up really creating the liberatory efforts because they're the people who are most often left behind. There is no way in which people like us can compete to uphold white male supremacy because we can never be white men. Absolutely. And we cannot even mimic being white men in the way that sometimes men of color can. Mm -hmm. um, Because Mm -hmm. we don't have access to the privilege of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that when we talk about these things in our communities... That we really focus on instead of taking look at having looking at having the same repetitive, hyper liberal discussions on problems in our community. That we're not turning around and looking at our homeless trans kids and how our single parents have such a big housing disparity and the things that are really making people's lives miserable on a day to day basis. You know what I mean? It's not that I don't care about cultural appropriation and sage and things like that, but here's the thing. Lots of our children are not eating on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And white sage will also not feed them. 
Yeah. And so <laughs> where my concerns lie are with food and land sovereignty because mm -hmm. we got to put food on people's plates. And yes, it's obnoxious to see a white person wear a headdress that they didn't wear, but they've been trying to steal our kids from us for the past 200 years. Are you really surprised? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's We just we keep having the same cyclical arguments about things that are very symbolic. They're like the tip of the iceberg on the glacier that is really the racism that we face in the system. And, I, and it's not that I want to reduce anything and tell people that things are more important, but certain things are more symptomatic where other things are actually core issues. And it's just like when everybody was crazy about that one shoe company where you, if you bought a pair of shoes, they would send a pair of shoes to a community of people who was impoverished. Well, why don't they have shoes in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know, like you are definitely looking at the leaves for the whole tree about certain <laughs> things. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's time to raise the conversations. It's time to, you know, people, people like to focus on, you know, the microcosm of the situation, like the, the micro aspects and things like that. Things that are, that are right in their face when there's like this whole system above it that, that just create That's create. It's like this, this, uh, it's the forest through the trees, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. going off of what you just said. It really is the forest through the trees. Like, there's the, the, situ there's, the situation is so much bigger, and there's so much more to it than what people want to see. And people, people latch on to these virtue signaling, you know, pat on the back type of concepts instead of really taking the time to dig into the further, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> the further. And um, it's, it's sad because a lot of us are getting lost between the cracks and, you know, it's, God, it's just, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. But, but yeah, like it's, you know, being a, a single, a newly, newly single mother, you know, navigating all these housing issues and all of the obstacles I'm, I'm really seeing and, and trying to pick apart how deep, how deep, deeply we are, our movements are controlled mm -hmm. because like, even if you have wealth, even if you have, you know, um, privilege, like there's only a certain, there's only certain things that you can do unless you're extremely rich. Like, you know, I was talking about it the other day, like I found, you know, after going over zoning laws, because like in the time for tiny houses, you can't just get a tiny house and you just plop it on a piece of land and call it a day. You know, the, the state, and specifically the county, it's not just the state, but also the county, they, they regulate like what type of building you can put on your land. Um, you know, they, they mandate what, uh, you know, kind of whether you're on well water, city water, sewage, you have to have a sewage set up, all of these things. And not only that, but like zoning, it has to be taken into account. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't just, like I said, plop it on a piece of land and call it a day, the zoning has to be as such where it allows for whatever structure you're trying to build. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I lucked out where I'm at um, right now. Uh, Joanna Berger, who's on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, she had reached out to me years ago, <clears throat> and, you know, she told me, she was like, if you ever needed a place to live, like, let me know. And that was a foreshadowing because I eventually did need a place to live, right? And mm -hmm. I was able to um, 
move in to move on to the land and, and keep my tiny house here for a couple of years. Uh, but that wouldn't have even been doable. I wouldn't have even been able to put the tiny house here if, if they hadn't been zoned appropriately. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not residential zoning. I'm, I don't want to disclose what kind of zoning in particular because I don't know if they'd be okay with that. But like if it was standard residential zoning, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Like um, even in suburban developments, if you're zoned a particular way, you may or may not be able to even have an RV. Mm-hmm you know, park there. And a lot of people didn't know. I didn't know all of this. I was like, well, it's my goddamn house, my damn land. I should be able to do whatever the hell I want. No, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. The, the state and the county, they have a completely different idea for you. And everything that they do, everything that they do forces you to have only a couple of options. You can either buy a house that's already built. Mm-hmm. You can rent an apartment and waste your money. You can be homeless. <laughs> and then be targeted or, for being homeless because God exactly. forbid if we just let people the fuck alone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, like, a lot of people who have gone the van route, so, like, some people will do up vans. I have a, I have a friend, Chelsea, who was trying to go that route. She was just going to get a van, um, gut it out, fix it up, and then travel cross country. Like, a lot of times, like, you know, if somebody, if one of the, the, if one of the, um, authorities catch you in a van sleeping at night somewhere that you shouldn't be sleeping, like they'll find you and then, you know, or God forbid they do something else. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I know I've been car dweller before. Yeah. You know, and it's, and the funny thing is that, um, when we talk about housing stability, especially for black and brown women, it often means that we have to tie ourselves to men in order to have any type of stability. And (laughs) I have ended up in much worse positions than I am now because of being forced into situations like that. I've been homeless off and on since I was 18, which was not my fault, you know. Um, And it's not that I didn't work. It's just that I couldn't work enough. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. That was an impossible situation because I already came from poverty. So it's not like anybody could supplement my income or help me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I ended up shacked up too young too many times. Mm, you and me, you and me both, boo. Like, yeah. But it's, but it's true. There's all of these variables at play that systematically prevent you from building wealth and, like, getting housing. Like, even with renting you renting like you have to, I mean it's astronomical like not only do you have to pay first month's rent you have to pay some places they want two months rent mm-hmm. up front they want your pet fees they want all these other fees tacked onto it you have to have good credit you can't go but you can't have a bankruptcy on it and it's like well not many people like people who are renting who already don't have wealth like they have backstories where a lot of that stuff might have happened like that's one of the reasons why I ended up trying to go the tiny tiny house route because I was trying to avoid bankruptcy. Everybody told me that's the worst thing you could possibly do, Kima. So avoid bankruptcy, but I couldn't afford anywhere to live. You know, my my credit was tied up in my mortgage because part, that's how it part works. of me Yeah, part of me trying to get out of poverty was to marry young and try to build and you know, with this man who had significantly more money than I did and ended up being in an abusive relationship, blah, blah, blah. So, like, when I left, I left everything. I had nothing. I didn't even have cookware, you know? Like, I had to get donations for all of this stuff. So, it's like, I, I, my all my finances were tied up. 
all my finances were tied up. And like in this country, everything revolves around your credit on top of that. Mm -hmm. So it's like you make that bankruptcy decision, you're impacted for the next 10, possibly 20 years. Like, you know, apartments won't take you. Like it's, it was, it was extremely stressful. And like, I didn't have, my family isn't rich, but my family's poor too. So like, they couldn't help me out. They were like, we could give you like 500, $1,000. That's it. And it's like, well, this apartment is asking for 1500. <laughs> like, yeah, and it's like, I don't have family support because I'm estranged because I had to leave an abusive household. So no, I'm not going to call the people who abuse me and be like, anyways, here's a route for you to get back into my life to continue to do this to me. I was like, no, I guess my shit's going to be living outside, you know? Mm -hmm. And I always managed to get a little bit lucky and just, you know, avoid it by the hair of my chinny chin chin. But I don't think that people should have to live like that. I yeah. especially don't think that black and native people should have to live like that. My great-grandma's mother was born enslaved, and she had to die in a state-run elder care facility because we were so poor. Where is the justice in that, you know? And I tried to follow all the rules and all of the respectability politics, and I went and I got my degree and all that shit. And all I got at the end was a mental health break. Yeah, <laughs> Because yeah. people should not be taking 18 credit hours a semester and working 30 hours a week to also put a roof over their head. That was fucking impossible. That's not good for the human psyche, you know? And everybody is like, that's super admirable. My, it, people would brag and be like, then you did it all yourself. And I'd be like, I shouldn't have had to. Yeah. People should yeah. not have to live like that. And you should not admire the fact that people have to suffer. Suffering should not be the basis for your respect for other human beings. Yeah, it shouldn't be glorified. And, no. you know, we're, in, like, in this hyper-individualistic, hyper-independent, like, society, you know, people glorify that suffering. It's like, it, it's like, it, I guess it, I guess it ties back to, like, the American dream, right? This false idea of the American dream. Well, you know, if you just work, my mama used to tell me that all the time growing up. She was like, you know, if you just work real hard, you'll make it, you'll, you'll, you'll be successful. And I worked my ass off. I was working like two jobs in college. Like when I was, when I was at home, you know, my mom was poor. So I had to get an, I had to get a job. I was working young. And my, I mean, the whole, the whole house that we had was just a mess because what ended up happening, happening is, you know, I went to Philly. I came back. My mom had formed uh, a drinking problem. Like my mom had a lot of mental health issues and she ended up leaving the house, leaving me with this house that was already gone, that had already gone to shit thanks to my brother. Um, she left me with this house to go live with her boyfriend at the time because he was sober and he was going to get her sober too and things like that. So here I was, 18, 19 years old in community college working at this shit, you know, uh, grill trying to make ends meet and <clears throat> having to get roommate after roommate, which was <laughs> traumatic each time because like a lot of them I just would have ter these terrible interactions with right like a couple of them were men a couple uh, one of them assaulted me the one girl that I had renting was just incredibly verbally abusive and disrespectful like it was just a it was just a mess it was just a mess and like it's just been this entire this series again and again and again moving from place to place to place mm -hmm. just experiencing nothing but you know control because like you said you know 
once people feel like they're giving you a handout, that they're helping you out, they feel like they're entitled to you and mm-hmm. entitled to controlling you and all these things like that. It's just it's just a bunch of narcissistic abuse mm-hmm. tied to housing. And like you said, it shouldn't be like that, you know? Like, people should be able to make decisions and choices. And this is the thing that I've really struggled with in therapy over the past couple of years because I've always felt like my survival depended on people-pleasing and, mm-hmm. you know, accepting abuse. If I didn't accept abuse, I was going to be in poverty, and it was part of why I stayed in my marriage for so long. It was it was incre- it was an incredibly abusive marriage. I knew it was, but I was too scared. I was scared. I had all these food insecurities. I had a baby, and I was like, <coughs> excuse me. I was like, oh my god. I was like, if I leave this man, I'm going to put my baby through the same shit that I went through. And you know, it just got to the point where it was like, well, I'll figure it out. My mama figured it out with me, but still. It's hard, dude. I, like, dropped my whole life and moved to upstate New York to help my friend do that because she was leaving a man who physically assaulted her child and he kept using money to hold over her head to be able to get to move back in with her. And if she hadn't have had help, I think that she would have had to resort to going back because she had two kids by herself and they're under five. Oh, yeah. And, and she was trying to finish her college courses and he refused to help her with child care. I was like, you know what? I know you agreed to pay me, but y'all are never going to get away from this horrible man if I don't just bite the bullet right now. And I don't like to live in houses where kids don't have warm water. So when the propane got turned off, I paid the bill. But that's Mm -hmm. just what you got to do to show up for your community because women Mm -hmm. and children are always left so insecure. And that's why it takes seven, eight times for people to get out of abusive relationships. And I've been there and I've done that. And, you know, I'm lucky because I don't have kids but I cannot imagine the situation where in which I was in charge of anybody's life but my own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes down to it, I don't know homeless, pregnant, or single parent people because it just doesn't make sense to me because, like, we're Native. You know what I mean? If you see another Native person who don't have a place for their kid to sleep at night, it is a social faux pas to allow that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> And to me, that's how I feel about anybody in that position where I'm just like, you're literally being left vulnerable because you're the person who can physically birth a child. That's the only reason that this has happened and mm-hmm. that you're being taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And that's that leaves so many of our women and queer people and femmes, the people who tend to be the caretakers, in positions of violent relationships and that's why domestic abuse is so high mm-hmm. for women in our communities and it's you know they don't keep enough statistics i think for people like us for me to really define what it is like for us as people who are also queer or mm-hmm. gender non-conforming because we barely have any data on native women let alone any of the other intersections that are available to us mm-hmm. but i don't really I can't even really imagine what it is like for native trans women when it comes to not being able to find housing because there are a little bit of statistics on what it's like for trans black women. So I assume it's exactly the same and that does not look good to me. No, it does. I'd like to first give a shout out to all my patrons who have still held on and keep supporting me, even though we had to take a really long hiatus and really revamp how the podcast is run. Thanks for sticking with me. And for those of you who don't know anything about my Patreon, definitely check it out at patreon.com slash the rambler. 
there's an underscore between the and Rambler. So that would be patreon.com slash T-H-E underscore Rambler. R-A-M-B-L-E-R. Definitely go check that out. I post lots of free stuff and information about myself so that it's easier to keep up with my projects. Also, recently I was very lucky to partner with a pretty cool group called Terra Incognita Media. And by group, I mean it's an intersectional and feminist response to outdoor media. And y'all should definitely go check that out because if you guys are like me and you like to travel and explore, but you maybe don't fit into the mainstream of what that looks like, this is the place for you to go check it out. They're also going to be posting transcripts of my interviews and episodes on the website. So for those of you who need extra help in that way, I'm doing my best to make things more accessible for people. And this is one of the really big steps I'm taking. So definitely, if you need that information, go to terraincognitamedia.com. That again is terraincognitamedia.com. 